Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Tyler Yank, a co-host of the channel. And today, we're very pleased to be speaking to Dr. Sasha Turner, Associate Professor at Quinnipiac University, about her new book, Contesting Contested Bodies, Pregnancy, Child Rearing, and Slavery in Jamaica, published in 2017 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Sasha, welcome to the show. Hi, Tyler. Thank you for having me. Um, Sasha, I wonder if you could begin by saying a little bit about yourself. (laughs) Well, you know, that's always a hard question. Um, You know, how do you sort of condense over 30 years of life into a few statements? Um, But I think, you know, one of the the things that um, I could start by talking about is that I am from Jamaica. um, And in many respects, my experiences growing up in Jamaica and my experience as an undergraduate student at the University of the West Indies, where I was exposed to women's history, particularly black women's history and studies around slavery and abolition, that really got me started and really interested in this project, um, which eventually became Contested Bodies. So in a way, um, this book really, um, you know, is a reflection of um, a lot of individuals who have trained me. It's a, it's a reflection of, you know, my life in Jamaica, you know, sort of growing up in Jamaica and the kinds of questions and curiosities that, you know, I had as a young person um, about our history, our Jamaican history and Caribbean history as well. Wonderful. Um, So I'd actually like to ask about the title of the book then, Contested Bodies. What does this refer to? So um, Contested Bodies, the idea of Contested Bodies actually came from a conversation with the late historian Stephanie Kemp. Um, most of us might be familiar with her work on enslaved women's resistance. And she created this concept, I think, in her fourth chapter, in the fourth chapter of her book, which was also a published article um, in the journal Slavery and Abolition. And she talked about this idea of the enslaved person having three bodies, you know, the body um, as a site of pain and suffering, the body also as a site of pleasure. And Stephanie Camp had read, um, you know, a few of my chapters, particularly chapter four in my book, where I talk about the conflicts between um, European doctors who were coming to the Caribbean and enslaved midwives and healers. And it was a conflict over the control of enslaved women's reproductive ability. It was a conflict um, over how, um, you know, the the kinds of care that enslaved women would receive during childbirth. And so um, Stephanie Camp sort of had this idea of thinking through conflict. And so, you know, she sort of mentioned, um, you know, the body was a contested terrain. And so from that conversation with her about the body being a contested terrain, I sort of came up with this notion of contested. Because what I really wanted to do 
in the book is to sort of show that, you know, slavery wasn't simply just domination. It wasn't just simply, you know, the enslaver imposing his will on the enslaved. And it wasn't just the enslaved also, you know, resisting. I wanted to show that it was this ongoing series of tension. It was this ongoing series of conflict, not just over labor, um, but in many respects over the body, the actual physical body of the enslaved. So it's both um, a reflection of the historiography, uh, speaking um, directly about Stephanie Camp's work, and also what is emerging here in this period in Jamaica as well. Wonderful. So so how did you come to write about pregnancy and child rearing and slavery? So <laughs> in this case, um, you know, it really started in the archive. I think a lot of us historians um, might find it difficult to identify a single story. And while in my case, there isn't necessarily a single story, I think one of the most um, memorable moments where this work really came into play is a letter that I uncovered. And this letter was written, I think it might have been in 1804. And this letter was written by a local agent in Jamaica, and he was writing to his employer who lived in England. Now, the way in which the plantations were set up in the 18th and 19th century is that you had these local agents who would manage the properties in Jamaica, and the owners lived in England, and they lived in London. And so there was a series of correspondence that would take place between Jamaican-based agents and the plantation owners who resided in England. And so here I was in the archives, um, you know, going through a series of correspondence. And one of the letters that I found uh, gave very um, this descriptive detail of the ways in which this local plantation agent in Jamaica was modifying the labor responsibilities of enslaved women. So in this letter, he described how, for example, he would place pregnant women within a group of three or four. And he did this because he wanted to protect enslaved women's pregnancy. And so he said, you know, if you allow these women, by allowing these women to work in group of three or four, then it allowed for a rest time in between. So these women would be feeding canes to the mill. So instead of, you know, constantly working, you know, two would be feeding while one is resting and alternating between working and resting. And the letter stood out to me um, for a number of reasons. One of the primary reasons is that, you know, I had understood the culture of sugar and slavery as one in which planters were not at all interested in pregnancy. Um, there was really very little respite given to enslaved pregnant women. Again, the idea for that line of argument is that the planters relied on the transatlantic uh, trade. And so because, you know, they were relying on this international trade in African people for replenishing the labor force, they didn't necessarily need to depend on childbearing for replacing dead and worn out laborers. And so... Here I found in the archive a letter that suggested quite the opposite. It actually suggested that there was some kind of interest, there was some kind of investment in at least protecting um, pregnancy. And so my curiosity from uncovering that letter, um, you know, took me down the path of, you know, what eventually became contested bodies. And so what I did from that point on was to try and understand the wider context in which this particular letter was written, what was going on here 
um, in Jamaica that essentially would be prompting this plantation owner, um, I'm sorry, this plantation agent to reassure the plantation owner that he was indeed protecting and save women's pregnancy. Wow, what a find. Um, what an excellent find. I know it's it's difficult when studying um, slavery and enslaved women and children in particular to find documents that speak to all of these subjects. Um, so to set the scene then, kind of beginning at the in the first section of your book, what were abolitionists arguing in the late 1700s then? And, and how did you sort of contextualize the letter within this? Right. Um, so as I mentioned, um, the letter and the date is sort of here escaping me. It was written either between 1804 and 1807, but regardless of, you know, whether it was 1804, 1807, this was the period just before the abolition of the slave trade. And this is what I meant when I said earlier that in uncovering this letter, I started to dig and find out what else was going on. So here in 1807, um, we have actually skipped forward um, almost 20 years from when abolitionist activists were campaigning against the slave trade. And part of the argument that they actually made was that the planters, because they had access to, you know, um, captive Africans, they didn't necessarily need to invest in the care and longevity of their enslaved workers. And so abolitionists came up with this very elaborate plan um, to say, you know, well, if we force these planters, if we force these enslavers to improve the condition of their workers, we can actually show them that you can, in fact, rely on enslaved women's reproductive ability to replenish the labor force. And so that would actually cause a natural death to the ending of the slave trade. And so it was the abolitionists beginning, particularly in the 1780s, especially by 1788, abolitionists were making this really very complicated argument um, about shifting away from the slave trade to replenish the, the, the slave um, laboring population by depending on the reproductive ability of enslaved women. So, you know, you fast forward to 1804, 1807. And this is sort of the tail end of a movement which had started um, or at least had gained momentum by the 1780s. And this movement was to, you know, shift away from the slave trade uh, towards enslaved women reproducing the labor force locally. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and then I think this fits into also conceptions of freedom and emancipation. So how is freedom then envisioned differently between these enslaved women um, and abolitionists, for example, and planters. So, you know, freedom and emancipation are very ticklish subject here um, in the 1780s, 1807, and, you know, by 1820. And it's a ticklish subject um, for a number of reasons, one of which is that even though abolitionists here in the 1780s were proposing ending the slave trade, a lot of them really shied away from suggesting um, that emancipation is actually the end goal here. So they really were explicitly focusing on ending the slave trade or finding an alternative to the slave trade. So there wasn't necessarily here in 1788 or between 1788 and 1807 an argument for freedom for the enslaved people and, or an argument for emancipation from slavery in general. So I think, you know, a lot of the times when people think about the ending of slavery in the Caribbean, there is this assumption that both the slave trade and slavery 
ended at the same time. But in fact, the slave trade comes to an end in 1807 and the slave trade, con- I'm sorry, um, the slave trade ends in 1807 and slavery continues um, straight until 1834. So they made a very clear distinction between freedom from slavery and the ending of the slave trade. Now, yeah, um, so as it pertains to enslaved people's vision of freedom, and this is part of the reason why I titled the book Contested Bodies, um, I really wanted to show throughout the book that enslaved people had very different ideas about freedom. They had very different ideas about how their bodies were to be cared, treated, and touched than the ideas that abolitionists, planters, and doctors had. So the contestation that I'm talking about are these multiple layers of conflicts, um, conflicts, you know, between all those different groups that I identified. And, you know, one of the things that I want us to be careful about in thinking of freedom We have a tendency to think of freedom in abstract terms, that it's, you know, just freedom from slavery. And one of the things that I do in the book is to say, well, what these women wanted, you know, yes, you know, freedom from slavery is sort of there, um, you know, in terms of what the, the women wanted, but they were also struggling for autonomy over their reproductive ability. They were struggling um, for maternal authority. They were struggling um, for freedom to be able to control their own lives, to be able to control their uh, reproductive ability, to be able to control the lives of their children. And so, you know, I really try and flesh out what exactly did freedom mean for the enslaved women in particular. And it wasn't just necessarily, you know, freedom from slavery and in an abstract sense, but all of these varying labors um, or layers, sorry, pertaining to autonomy, pertaining to control um, over one's lives and control, of of course, um, over the lives of children and family. I love that idea of maternal authority. I think it's, I also think it's so important, um, especially when studying enslaved women um, in in colonial contexts. So you mentioned this a little bit, but kind of moving then to maybe the second part of your book um, or the mid part, how did the importance of reproduction Um, among enslaved women shift over time? So among planters, doctors, the women themselves? So this is, um, the book is somewhat of a moving target. Um, You know, there are complex casts of characters that I'm trying to keep track of, and I'm trying to keep track of them over, um, it's a relatively short period of time, um, but, you know, 20 years can be a long time. So I'm keeping track of them between 1788 and 1834. And the significance of those dates, so 1788 marks the period at which the abolitionist movement gained momentum. And of course, 1834 marks the passing um, of the Emancipation Act that sort of, you know, ends uh, slavery, even though it inaugurates an apprenticeship system that would last up until 1838. So, you know, slavery comes to an end, but there is a sort of quasi um, free status or that's been imposed on the enslaved people via an apprenticeship system. But within this period, there are a number, a significant um number of changes that are taking place. So on the one hand, we're seeing um, doctors emerging in the Caribbean. Again, before the 1780s, you had one or two European doctors who would have been in the Caribbean, but 
in terms of the overall um, structure of healthcare um, in the Caribbean, healing and healthcare was part was was largely the responsibility of healthcare. I'm sorry, the larger the responsibility of enslaved people. And so we're seeing a gradual displacement of enslaved healers, a gradual displacement of midwives by European doctors who are coming to the Caribbean, and they're coming to the Caribbean for a number of reasons. One is that they are being invited by the slaveholders um, who now, you know, by force of abolitionism and, of course, the British Parliament is, you know, invested in this idea of ameliorating the condition of the enslaved. And one of the ways in which you ameliorate the condition of the enslaved is by being more attentive to health care. But the doctors are coming, too, because this is also a period um, of transition in England and in Europe where we're actually seeing a shift away from from um, women giving birth at home. And now we're seeing the advent of the man midwife or the, 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 the sort of the creation of academic medicine. And so the Caribbean as a colony creates a space um, for doctors or at least trainees who wouldn't necessarily have access to bodies, um, bodies to experiment on, you know, ill bodies to explore different kinds of diseases. So we have doctors who are really looking to make a name for themselves in the Caribbean where they would have access, you know, to a wide range of um, illnesses, a wide range of, you know, people um, that they could then experiment and develop new ideas about diseases and the treatment of diseases diseases, as well as ideas about giving birth, etc. And of course, we have the enslaved women uh, who, for this period, it's a moment of transition. Um, and it's a moment of transition because as I started out said by saying, before the 1780s, planters were not very interested in childbirth. Um, and I think that's one point I should have clarified earlier, that, you know, one of the discoveries that I made along the way is that the letter was very contextual. We perhaps would not have read a similar kind of attempt to regulate and protect women's pregnancies, say, in 1720s Jamaica again, because, you know, the slave trade was pretty much the primary way in which the... Um, the enslaved laborers were being replaced. And so during that period before the 1780s, enslaved midwives, enslaved healers had relative autonomy over healthcare, had relative autonomy over childbearing practices. And so the 1780s is a moment of transformation. It's a moment of tremendous change. It's a moment when enslaved women are losing that autonomy that they had been able to carve out in the period before the 1780s when uh, slaveholders became interested in reproduction and childbirth. So there is a lot that is happening here as it pertains to the enslaved women, uh, meaning enslaved mothers, enslaved healers and midwives, of course, the planters um, and the doctors as well. So there is quite a bit <laughs> that I'm trying to keep track of, um, both in terms of change over time, but so many different characters who are involved here. Yes, a wide cast of characters. Um, one thing I really enjoyed in your book, actually, among many, uh, was your discussion of how the significance of, as you were saying, sort of West African traditions in medicine, for example, and patterns of life being reproduced in Jamaica by enslaved West African women. Um, so could you say a little bit more about these? How did these interplay with life on the plantation? So 
I, I, I didn't necessarily um, go to West African sources in an attempt, for example, to explore what we might say African cultural continuities in the Caribbean. So I just want to clarify that, um, that I wasn't necessarily trying to make this argument about cultural continuities. I mainly went to West African sources in an attempt to piece together what was going on in Jamaica. So, you know, a lot of the writers or some of the writers who wrote about the Caribbean, and I'm talking here, European writers who are writing about the Caribbean, um, have made references along the way um, to what's going on in Western, West Central Africa. So what I was essentially trying to do, one, is to piece together the very fragmented evidence from the archives that I was dealing with in Jamaica. But also I wanted to ask the broader question about how enslaved women would have, you know, treated uh, or how African women sorry, would have treated um, a pregnant woman's body, even if or outside of the context of slavery. So I was trying to see these women, you know, what did childbirth mean? Um, what kinds of rituals would they have developed to care for and save or, you know, African women's uh, pregnancy outside the context of slavery? So in a way, it was trying to fill in some of the gaps that I had um, experienced in the archive. But, you know, it was very interesting. It was a very interesting journey because it really challenged some of the ideas that, um, you know, we have, we have concluded as historians and, you know, more broadly, it sort of challenged um, some of the kinds of pro-slave racist arguments um, that Europeans had used to justify the slave trade and slavery. And I'll give you one example, which is, you know, um, one that I think about quite a lot. So European planters or uh, slaveholders would write about enslaved women as having an easy time giving birth. So they made this argument that enslaved women did not need um, any kind of human intervention while they were given birth. And in fact, they argued that, you know, African women, black women um, didn't sort of feel pain during childbirth. And that argument, um, you know, was used to create a distinction between white women and black women. And the, the argument, and here I'm sort of citing Jennifer Morgan's uh, work, Laboring Women, where she says that what Europeans were doing in trying to justify the enslavement of African, Africans is that they were creating differences. They were creating cultural differences and um, bodily differences between Europeans and Africans. And so if they made the claim um, that African women did not actually experience pain during childbirth, the effect of that is to define Africans and African-descended people as being outside um, the Christian community. So if you trace back um, the argument about Eve sort of, you know, having, you know, pain during childbirth. The argument here is that, you know, all members of the Christian community or certainly all women, female members of the Christian community, a mark of their belonging to this community is that they would feel or experience um, pain during childbirth. So when Europeans made the argument that um, African descended women did not experience pain during childbirth, part of what they were doing is to define African women and African descended women as being beyond the Christian community. So they're creating this cultural distinction between African women and European women as a way to justify enslaving um, African women. 
I, and I could see that. And I think that's an important argument to make. But I sort of, um, you know, as I read through, you know, both Jennifer Morgan's work and references made by Europeans about this absence of um, pain during childbirth, I wondered, did they sort of just come up with this idea out of thin air? And I sort of asked, you know, is it possible that this does in fact reflect some kind of a reality for African women, for African descended women? So yes, on the one hand, you know, this was a very racist idea that planters, Europeans were using to justify slavery, but is there something else here that's going on? And one of the things that I discovered in sort of digging through some of the writings on West Africa, bearing in mind again, that a lot of these West African sources were also written by Europeans right? But one of the things that I discovered um, is that West Africans, um, particularly the sources um, coming out of Sierra Leone um, and the Gold Coast present day um, Ghana, is that uh, African women thought there was this cultural idea that to cry and to scream during childbirth was to communicate your disavowal of the honor, the ancestral honor of becoming a mother. So within the context of 18th century West African culture, motherhood was revered. And so the argument was that, you know, if you cried and if you screamed, you were dis essentially dishonoring this very honorable task that was given to you. And so women who were part of the birthing community would go through various lengths to silence the mother who was given birth. And so European uh, recorders who were not necessarily present within the birthing room would know that, yes, a woman is given birth. And because they're expecting the woman to scream and they're not necessarily hearing those screamings while giving birth, they automatically assume that these women were not feeling pain. So I actually, you know, uh, sort of pull apart that argument to say, Perhaps, indeed, these women were not screaming because of this cultural belief that if you screamed, it meant that you were rejecting this sacred duty of motherhood. It wasn't a reflection that they were not feeling pain. But what Europeans did was to, you know, create this very convoluted ideas about West African cultural practices to then justify slavery. So the kind of choice that I made as a historian was to try and figure out, well, one, is there some kind of a reality that is being seen, that is being represented here and to try and peel away or peel back that distortion of the reality and offer an alternative explanation? And so the alternative explanation that I've offered is that it's not that these women were not feeling pain, but they went through elaborate lengths to silence these women because, you know, silence was interpreted as you're accepting this sacred duty of motherhood. And these women wanted to communicate that sacred acceptance. Wow. Thank you. That is such important work. <laughs> and there are so many layers to this um, that, you know, I think I haven't read any works that have delved into these issues of reproduction and pregnancy to the same degree. So it's wonderful. Thank you. Um and another thing I really enjoyed about your book is the way you you sort of map out the chronology of motherhood. So you go from pregnancy to childbirth to child rearing and then and then raising children. Um, so could you say a little bit about childcare and about maybe the lived experiences of slave childhood in Jamaica? 
Yes. Um, so again, I think that's also um, another moment where we can talk about, you know, historians making certain choices. Um, I, I sort of had the moment where I, I, I wondered and thought through whether I would sort of use uh, chronological storytelling or, or line to, to tell these women's stories um, or, you know, could I sort of tell it through the reproductive cycle of an enslaved woman um, from, you know, conception, um, through pregnancy, through delivery, and of course, through the raising of children. So that was sort of, um, you know, a deliberate kind of storyline that I used, again, in an attempt to center the enslaved women. So it was difficult because in a way I am accessing these enslaved women um, through the records and through the lens of abolitionists, slaveholders, who are all men. And so I, I didn't necessarily want their chronology and their kind of interest to narrate the story. I wanted, you know, something of these women to narrate the story. And so that was part of the reason why I sort of chose to sort of go through this reproductive life cycle um, as the narrative framework that I would use to tell these women's story. But I sort of end um, my, my final chapter, I think, which is um, chapter seven. Uh, it ends on slave childhood. And in this chapter, um, you know, I sort of talk about the various stages of enslaved children growing up from infancy into, um, into you know, adolescence and um, early, I'm sorry, early adulthood. And one of the things that, you know, I, I wanted to come across in this chapter is that childhood isn't sort of this abstract, um, you know, biological entity that exists out there that you automatically go through. Um, childhood is sort of this complex mixture um, of, you know, social and cultural ideas, along with certain biological or developmental phases that individuals go through. So it's sort of this... Um, this working out of both the physical uh, sexual development of young people, as well as the kinds of cultural and social, and in this case, economic impositions that were being placed on individuals or young individuals. And so in that final chapter, I talk about, you know, um, planter conceptions of um, enslaved infants moving from a period of infancy through to early childhood and um, through to various phases that they call, you know, they make the distinction between girls and boys and of course, they then make the distinction between uh, girl, woman, and man, boy. And I found that final category particularly intriguing um, because it sort of showed this conflict on the one hand that planters had in trying to assess the development of young people. So it is sort of this liminal phase between you know, a young person who is not quite a child and that person who is not yet quite an adult. And it was sort of interesting to see how planters were working out these ideas of, you know, enslaved people being in that in-between category between adulthood and childhood. And what they did with these various categories, um, first of all, they, they were very attentive to these categories. And it's something that historians have not spoken about. In fact, there are some historians who suggest that the enslaved did not have a child childhood. And I, I kind of push back against that argument because it sort of presupposes that, you know, childhood is this category that you either have it or you don't, as opposed to seeing childhood, um, 
as being, you know, socially and cult- culturally constructed within a particular um, historical moment. And so I really wanted to communicate that point around the social and cultural construction of childhood, both from the perspective of slaveholders, as well as from the perspective um, of enslaved mothers and the community as a whole. And so on the one hand, you had um, planters and slaveholders who made these very complicated categories of slave childhood, again, from infancy to girl boyhood and then of course man girl I'm sorry man uh, girl girl woman I'm getting confused because <laughs> there were so many categories <laughs> um, the final category was girl woman um, and man boy right um, and these assessments were based on you know whether or not an individual could perform certain work tasks and what kind of punishment um, would be meted out to them on the other hand you had enslaved mothers who didn't necessarily have the same ideas and it was very difficult because you know most of these sources well, all of these sources, I should say, are from the perspective of planters. So the most the, the, the most difficult thing was to try and figure out, well, what did slave childhood mean from the perspective of the enslaved, uh, meaning enslaved children? And what did slave childhood mean from the perspective of enslaved mothers and fathers? And, you know, for enslaved mothers and fathers, it wasn't these careful calculations about, you know, are you physically able to carry a basket um, of trash or three bundles of cane uh, 10 yards or 20 yards out. It wasn't those kinds of calculations. The kinds of calculations that enslaved mothers and fathers were making is around the healthcare needs um, of children, is around, you know, what kind of support do they need? You know, um, you know how are they going to be taken care of in terms of food, uh, clothing? So it's a very different set of calculations that the enslaved mothers were making um, from what the planters were making because their assessments were very much based on, you know, the laboring ability of the enslaved. Yeah, such an important section of the book as well. Um, and then I just wanted to ask before we do our wrap up, are there moments of rebellion or subtle resistance that you come across in the archive um, and in your book in particular, either for mothers or, or other actors? Um, yes, there are, there are. So, you know, part of the the contestation is talking about rebellion, though not always labeling at, labeling it as such. Um I wanted to sort of show throughout the book that resistance, like freedom, wasn't this abstraction of enslaved people continuously fighting um, just to gain freedom, right? The kinds of resistance that I talk about um, were very specific to the context of pronatal amelioration, which is what I sort of label this period between 1788 and 1834. So what I tried to do throughout the book was to look at very specific contexts in which women were challenging what the kinds of um, uh, demands that slaveholders and doctors were imposing on them. Let me offer a few sort of illustrative examples of what I mean. I created this concept, maternal resistance, to challenge what historians have talked about as gynecological resistance. In the historiography, historians develop the concept of gynecological resistance to highlight um, 
infanticide and abortion as the ways in which enslaved people resisted the kinds of claims, the general claims that slaveholders made on enslaved women's reproductive ability. So the argument is that enslaved women denied planters, um, you know, the capital claims that they placed on their ability to give birth. So my child would not be enslaved. I'd rather to kill my child than to see my child enslaved. It's sort of an extreme example of gynecological resistance. In my book, I offer um, a different way of thinking about resistance around reproductive ability. And I call it maternal resistance because it wasn't necessarily centered around death. One of the things that came out um, during the course of the, the research is the ways in which the shadow of death or specter of death hovered over enslaved women. And what I actually saw, particularly in the sections of the book where I talk about the kinds of healthcare rituals that enslaved women enacted to protect pregnancy and to protect um, infants and newborns, is that these women um, were fighting too to keep their children alive. Yes, on the one hand, you know, infanticide and abortion were real things, were sort of um, part of the experience of enslaved women, but it wasn't the sum total of the experiences. There were women who were fighting to keep their children alive. And so I'm arguing that the resistance that is occurring here isn't one that is centered around death, but instead it's one that's centered around life. And so I talk about women, for example, who ran away with um, their infants at the breast. And one of the reasons women were running away um, with their infants is because planters here in the 1780s to 1834 were imposing strict weaning deadlines. They were imposing strict lactational practices on enslaved women where they would instruct the enslaved women to nurse their children at certain times of the day. They would require them to wean their children at a certain age. So before the 1780s, enslaved women would have, would have um, continued lactating for up to 36 months. And planters here in this period were imposing a six to 12 month deadline um, on these women. And so the records that I found of women running away with their infants, I suggested that this is a kind of resistance, a kind of maternal resistance that we're seeing that is not centered around death, but actually centered around protecting certain maternal rights that enslaved women had carved out before the 1780s. So what I'm suggesting with resistance is that we shift away or at least expand our analysis of seeing it in abstract terms of resistance against slavery, but seeing it um, in almost a microscopic sense where we're looking at very specific things that women were resistant and very specific things that women wanted, such as reproductive autonomy and, of, of course, control um, over their birth rights and, of course, control um, uh, over you know how they would attend to their children. Yes. So, man, such important work, such interesting work. Um, thank you so much. I, you know, the question of resistance is one that I think is still being worked through in the historiography, as you said. So I think this is an important contribution. Um, so I'd actually like to wrap up quickly. We've taken a great deal of your time already. Um, and I'd like to ask you the traditional final question at New Books Network. What are you working on now? <laughs> so I'm working on a new project around emotions. Um, the title, the sort of working title that I have uh, is Slavery, Emotions and Gender. And it's a look at the various 
emotions that we're seeing sort of coming out in slavery and the kinds of social and cultural expectations constructed around those emotions. So what got me started in this project is actually contested bodies. And I I started by looking at maternal grief. And I started by looking at maternal grief because death, as I mentioned before, was sort of this ever-present shadow for enslaved women. And if you look at the records, um, almost three quarters quarters of enslaved women's children died before they reached age two. And so one of the things that really puzzled me is within this context of death, how were the women responding to the deaths of their children? What were the kinds of social and cultural expectations about how mothers were supposed to respond? Were they given a space to grieve? Uh, were they given a space to mourn the deaths of their children? And so I, you know, I, I, I went through the archives and there were these moments when I would find um, slaveholders referring to mothers who would awaken them in the middle of the night accidentally um, by the screaming and shouting in, um, you know, after the death of their children. And so I, I, I sort of followed through with some of those moments to try and identify or to kind of try and capture the moments of grief that enslaved women were expressing over the deaths of their children alongside the kind of cultural expectations around how someone was supposed to grieve. One of the things um, that I did beginning with this emotion, and of course the book itself will look at, will look at other emotions, is the kinds of expectations um, from an African cosmological standpoint around certain emotions. And I think it's Vincent Brown's uh, book, The Reaper's Garden, talks about the notion of Africans celebrating the death of um, enslaved people. And part of the argument of the celebration of death is that death meant a liberation from slavery. But one of the questions that I, I had is how does reproduction actually changes certain emotions? How does reproduction change the expression or the cultural expectations around certain emotions? In this case, um, the, the expression of grief and mourning practices. And one of, the, one of the points that I argue, so I have a recent essay which came out in Slavery and Abolition that talks about this, is that reproduction actually changes the extent to which certain African ideas about the celebration of death would be applicable because Africans would have celebrated death if they thought that one spirit would return home to the African homeland. And part of what I argue is that enslaved children who were born in Jamaica would not necessarily have the same ancestral home as enslaved women who were born in Africa. So there is this separation between African-born mothers and their Jamaican-born children. So we're seeing a dilemma here being created about how the enslaved mother would have uh, responded to the death of her children um, if they would have been separated in the afterlife. So would enslaved mothers have celebrated knowing that in the afterlife, you know, her spirit, if we go by that cosmological view, her spirit would return to Africa and her child's spirit would return to Jamaica. And so I argue that enslaved women in Jamaica were born um, or creating a new set of um, ideas, a new set of traditions around death and grief and mourning, because here, giving birth to children in Jamaica perhaps would have closed them off to certain African ideas. In this case, you know, celebrating because the spirits would be 
reunited in the face of death. So maternal grief is one of the emotions that I, I'm starting with. And then the book will sort of pick up with other kinds of emotions. Um, and of course, you know, the ways in which these were gendered, particularly how does reproduction change, you know, how uh, we respond um, to certain life events and of course the kinds of cultural expectations around certain emotions. Sasha, that sounds like a great project. <laughs> um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again. Thank you very much, Tyler. 